We are in a series where we're looking at various parables and miracles of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to look at one of Jesus' parables, the parable of the faithful servants, as found in Luke 12, 35 to 40. And as you're turning your Bibles to Luke 12, 35 to 40, may I just review some things that are very foundational and important for all us to understand when we look at any parable. Number one, parables always teach from the known to the unknown. That's what they're all about. They're teaching from something the listeners knew to something the listeners did not know and needed to know. Secondly, when you look at the Gospels, you see that the Lord Jesus taught in parables very frequently. In fact, one-third of all of Jesus Christ's teachings in the four Gospels are in the form of parable. He was very fond of that way of teaching. Number three, each of Jesus' parables were given either to solve a problem or to answer a question. And for us to unlock the true meaning of any parable, we have to figure out what is the problem that he's speaking to address in the parable or what is the question he is answering by giving that particular parable. Number four, we must search uh, any parable's context, specifically the preceding context. We have to look at the verses that lead up to the verses that give us the parable to see what those verses are addressing, what they are suggesting, what are they reporting in order to be able to understand the parable properly in context. And fifth and last, we have to understand that it is impossible to discover the truth of any parable by superimposing our culture, our customs onto Jesus' parable. We ought never to do that. Rather, we are to understand the time of Jesus' culture, the time of Jesus' customs, and then look at the parable in light of that. That's how we get an accurate meaning when we study any parable. And so with these understandings, I would like to take us to the actual parable of the faithful servants. It's found in Luke 12, uh, 12 yes, 35 to 40, as I mentioned. Hear the word of God. Jesus' words, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight. And be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third, he finds them so blessed. Blessed are those slaves. And be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. We must first ask, what was the setting of this parable. What has just happened before Jesus taught this particular parable? Well, at this point in Jesus Christ's public ministry, it had become crystal clear to the disciples that the nation of Israel was going to reject him as Messiah, reject him as Savior. They could see that clearly. And this rejection would necessitate the postponement, but not the cancellation, of Christ's literal thousand-year kingdom. From other scripture, we know that the postponement of Christ's kingdom uh, will end with the second coming 
of the Savior. Not the rapture return of Jesus for the church that we expect next, but seven years later when Christ will come a second time, we call it the second coming, that is when the postponement of the kingdom of Christ on earth will end and we will have a kingdom of Christ on earth. Listen to Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, predicting that it would be the second coming of Jesus Christ that would usher in his long-expected kingdom. Zechariah 14, 1 through 9. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem in battle and the city will be captured the houses plundered and the woman ravished and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will split in its middle from east to west in a very large valley so the half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Aziel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day, it uh, is to known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in the summer as well as in the winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name, the only one. This was the prophet Zechariah's prediction of the second coming return of Christ, where Christ will literally come back to earth, will land on the Mount of Olives. Many of you have seen that in pictures or perhaps been there. The mountain will rent in two, and God will make a seismological shift that the north part of the Mount of Olives will move north, and the south part of the Mount of Olives will shift south, and that is the corridor, the seismological corridor that the Lord Jesus Christ will walk through to the eastern gate. The eastern gate will be opened by that tremendous earthquake, and he will assume, take, sit upon David's throne and rule the world with righteousness. That's what we're looking forward to. But the disciples, before Jesus told them this parable, they were wondering what was going to happen because it was clear to them that it wasn't going well with Jewish reception of Jesus. They were rejecting him. They wanted to kill him, and the disciples knew that right well. And so they had some questions, and this parable is going to answer these questions. And so with Christ's kingdom postponement clearly in view, the Lord Jesus taught his disciples how to conduct themselves in the years that would be when he was back to heaven and not yet returned to earth. By the way, that's the time period we live and serve in, right? That we are waiting for his return. So the instruction that Jesus Christ gave to his first disciple followers, he gives to us this morning. Because we're waiting for him to return and we are given the assignment to carry out his ministry until he returns. And so the parable was for them in the first century, and it is equally for us this morning. 
And so when it dawned on Jesus' first disciples that Christ's ministry work was going to fall on them, when he would not be with them, they must have had some basic questions. (laughs) Like, what would Jesus expect of them? And what are the characteristics of a true servant? And what rewards might a good servant expect? And so this wonderful parable is Jesus Christ teaching on the answers to those questions. And in this parable, our Lord took his listeners, in their imaginations at least, to one of his favorite places. And maybe it's one of your favorite places as well. He took them to a wedding feast. Weddings back then were quite different than the weddings of today. Wedding banquets in Jesus' day uh, had no set time to end. You didn't know when they were going to end. Depending on the wedding banquet's host's wealth, there could be one meal or there could be several meals in this wedding feast, whatever the host could afford. And of course, the more meals, the longer the wedding feast and reception went. That would have been a lot of peas and rice. Typically, uh, the supervisors of the wedding's banquet waiters would be off-site for a time. They would come to the wedding meal, but only after it had started and the waiters under the supervisor's care had started to work. So this meant that until the supervisor arrived at the wedding reception, these waiters who were on duty had to self-supervise. They had to monitor their own job performances until the supervisor arrived. And of course, in this time period of waiting for the supervisor to arrive, this self-supervision of the waiters only worked out if the waiters were not lazy, if the waiters were not careless, if the waiters were not derelict in the discharge of their duty. It was never exactly known when the master of the wedding banquet waiters would show up. There were travel considerations and other business considerations that made the arrival time of the waiter's supervisor unknown, up in the air. And of course, this fact separated the faithful servants from the unfaithful ones. Very soon into the wedding feast itself, it would have become very apparent which kind of waiters were on the job, the diligent ones or the ones who were not diligent. It would become as plain as the nose on your face which kind of waiters you had. Now, one of the duties of one of the wedding banquet waiters was to man the gate, to be there to open it when the supervisor knocked to enter into the wedding feast. So whenever the supervisor was going to arrive at the wedding feast, one waiter was to be at the gate, ready, and to open the gate just as soon as the supervisor arrived and have the supervisor come in to do his work supervising the wedding feast. Of course, when any supervisor of wedding waiters showed up at a gate, they soon either saw a man manning the gate or they saw no man manning the gate. Some unfaithful waiters and some presumptuous waiters left the gate unattended, assuming that the master would not arrive anytime soon. 
These unsatisfactory waiters figured that the master was going to be a long time coming and that they had lots of time, plenty of time, before they had to get to the gate to let him in. In very sharp contrast, the commendable waiters, the faithful waiters, didn't let the master's delay or the uncertainties of the timing of the master's arrival stop them from properly, responsibly discharging their duties at the gate. (laughs) These good waiters were like some inside dogs that you have who sit by your door on the inside seemingly all day when you're away and they're just watching the door handle to hear the key go in the lock and then they go into full tail wagging mode and some of them run around in little circles of excitement to welcome you home. The supervisor of the waiters wanted a waiter at the door whenever he arrived to open the gate promptly to let him in to the wedding feast. Now, clearly in Jesus' parable, we see teaching that the faithful servant performs his assigned tasks even if the master is absent or the master is delayed. Verses 35 and 36 again. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight and be like the men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Notice, please, that Jesus' parable now will move from the scene of, and the concept, rather, of job performance to the concept of job pay. Jesus is moving his way through this parable. He starts by talking about job performance, and then he moves to job pay. Verse 37. Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve. That is the master, the supervisor, will gird himself to serve and have them recline at table and will come up and wait on them. That's unexpected. But that's what the parable says. And remarkably, this verse of this parable says that the good and faithful and ready, diligent and self-motivated servant of that day would in fact be served by the master. That's amazing. Who'd have thought of that? The servants who pulled the chairs out to seat the guests at the wedding banquet, if they were found faithful, the master would pull chairs out for them to sit at the banquet feast. (laughs) Amazing. What an unexpected courtesy. The servant being served. And served, no less, by the supervisor of the servers. And... It is important for us to notice the basis of this reward for faithfulness was faithfulness. The reason these servants could hope to have their supervisors seat them at the feast was if they would be faithful. If they weren't found to be faithful, they would not be seated at the banquet table by the supervisor You know, it's a good thing that a servant can be faithful 
whether the servant is smart or average. A servant can be faithful whether the servant is educated or uneducated. A servant can be faithful whether young or old. A servant can be faithful whether healthy or sickly. A faithful servant can either be a brand new Christian or a well-seasoned and well-maturing believer. And one of the parable's points is that there was and there still is no legitimate reason to fail to do one's duty and to do it well. There is no legitimate reason that as servants of Christ that we don't do our duty and we don't do it well. Now, back into the custom of this whole time of wedding feasts and so on, in Jesus' time, travel after dark was uncommon. Therefore, the wedding waiters might have thought, the ones that were not very diligent, they might have thought that come sunset, their master would not show up until sometime after sunrise. But that was not thinking or reasoning which made a servant faithful or rewardable. <laughs> Night or day, the supervisor had the expectation that the gate to the wedding feast would be manned, night or day. Verse 38, whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. The second watch was 9 p.m. to midnight. That's about when I go to bed or earlier. The third watch was midnight to 3 a.m. Jesus said, any time between 9 p.m. and 3 a.m., a faithful servant is manning the gate for the supervisor. Now, for there to be that expectation that the gate would be manned from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. showed that the Lord gives no excuse for unfaithfulness. No matter how logical or reasonable we might think an excuse would be to being unfaithful, there is no accepted, legitimate excuse for not discharging our duty as Christians, followers of Christ, and not doing the discharging of that duty with excellence. No excuse. Verses 39 to 40. And be sure of this that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. 40, you too be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. The parable here switches from the scene of a wedding feast to the scene of a home security gate. We have a home security gate in a front courtyard in the church parsonage that graciously we're allowed to live in. And maybe some of you have home security gates. Jesus moves the parable from a wedding feast to the scene of a home security gate. And he says that just like any homeowner would make sure that a burglar could not break into his house if he knew when the intruder was coming, so Christ's followers are to be vigilant in safeguarding what's important until the day when Jesus Christ actually returns. 
<laughs> the last verse of this wonderful parable ties a ribbon and a bow on top of the main teaching point of the parable. And this is the main teaching point of the parable. Christ followers are always to be ready, alert, faithful, diligent, and on task servants, even if, and especially since, we don't know the day of Christ's return for us. That is the teaching point of this parable, that Christ's followers are always to be ready, alert, faithful, diligent, and on-task servants, even if, and especially since, we don't know the day of his return for us. Verse 40. You too, be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. This short parable bears repeating as I read it in its entirety to get the flow again. Jesus said and taught, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight. For, and be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and will have them recline at table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. And be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. That's the parable. Here are some takeaways that bridge generation and bridge century. The first takeaway for us is protecting what you are to protect is success. Protecting what you are to protect is success. And anything short of protecting what we're supposed to protect is failure. You give your child, your young child, to the care of a babysitter, and that person's job is to protect your child or children until you get home. Anything short of that is failure. You put your money in a bank, and you deposit funds into a bank, their responsibility is to keep care and protection of your funds so that they don't go to anybody else. Not to do that as a bank is to fail as a bank. Our church has responsibilities in the heart of God. We have responsibilities to protect the Bible, to protect disciple-making as a process, to protect the gospel, to protect evangelizing, etc. And if we fail as a church to protect these things, we have become a failure. Let's get personal, you and me. We have the responsibility to protect, I'll just say you, but I mean me too, protect your heart to protect your mind, to protect your marriage, to protect your children, to protect your Christian testimony, to protect your church. Each one of us have those things for which God holds us responsible to protect. 
And if we fail to protect any of those things, my brothers and sisters, we have failed. Because protecting what you are to protect is success. The second timeless truth to see is that protecting is absolutely necessary. Protecting is absolutely necessary because we have an enemy, don't we? And this enemy, Satan, wants to deceive us, wants to steal from us, wants to hurt us, and wants to ultimately murder us. And so it's not will Satan attack, it's when will Satan attack, and how will Satan attack. You do realize that Satan is scheming your spiritual and physical demise 168 hours each week? How many hours are you putting in to resist him in a week? We are called to resist Satan with the word of God, prayer to God, fellowship with the saints, accountability among the saints, avoidance of temptation, and witnessing Christ to the lost. To guard our minds in the memorization of scripture, to be aware of the unique flesh patterns that we have in our lives, to be killing sin so sin would not be killing us. Billy Sunday, that great professional baseball player who was radically saved and became a firebrand evangelist of another era, said, one reason sin flourishes is that it is treated like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. We have responsibility to understand that protecting the things of God is absolutely necessary. In the upper room before Jesus went to the cross, he made very clear the battle lines for his disciples and by extension for us. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master, and if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all things they do, they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had come, if I had not come and spoken with them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that was written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, is the, who is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Jesus says to them and to us, when I go, the Holy Spirit will minister in and through you, but you protect 
what needs to be protected because it will be under attack. The third point, not only is protecting what we are to protect success, not only is protecting absolutely necessary, but in the third place, any Christian can be faithful. Isn't that great? Any Christian can be faithful. There is nobody who's trusting Jesus right now for salvation that can raise their hand and says, but I can't be faithful. Yes, you can. Any Christian can be faithful. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. One of the reasons any Christian can be faithful is we have a high priest who understands us in heaven that we can pray to. But there's more. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Beyond the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Any Christian can be faithful. Ephesians 6, 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Any Christian can be faithful. And of course, you know that faithfulness is one of the beautiful aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. When we're filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, then one of the things he'll produce in our lives is faithfulness. Any Christian can be faithful. Fourth and last, every Christian is expected to be faithful. Every Christian is expected to be faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2, in this case, moreover, it is required, required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. That is, other versions say, translated faithful. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. God expects us to be faithful. Any of us can be faithful, and all of us are expected to be faithful. Faithful in our relationship with Christ, faithful in our marriages, Faithful in our money, faithful in our use of God's time, faithful. Faithful in using our spiritual gifts within the body of Christ called this church, faithful. Faithful in prayer meeting, faithful in Sunday school, faithful in the 8 or the 11 a.m. services, faithful. Faithful to pray for our missionaries, faithful. Any Christian can be faithful. And every Christian is expected to be faithful. And do you know when all is said and done? When we appear before the judgment seat of Christ as born-again Christians, a one-by-one appearance before Jesus, the evaluator of our Christian lives, do you know what will be his measurement 
and barometer of success? Faithfulness. If you can stand before Jesus at the beam of judgment seat of Christ as a faithful person, you will be deemed a successful person by Jesus. But if you stand before Jesus as a believer and he knows everything about your life since you trusted him to be your savior and you cannot be characterized by faithfulness, Jesus will not reward unfaithfulness. This is not a heaven and hell evaluation. This is a reward in the kingdom of Christ evaluation. Oh, I want to stand before Jesus and be faithful. If I haven't been faithful to this point in my redeemed life, I want to start being faithful. I want to be faithful. Because I want to hold in my mind from this parable that protecting what you are to protect is success. That protecting is absolutely necessary. That any Christian can be faithful. And that every Christian is expected to be faithful. I just believe that all of you want that for your lives too. Let's set apart, let's set about being faithful. Let's set about being faithful in the next steps that God shows us as we walk with Him in His Word. Let's just set about being faithful. Would you stand with me, please? Father, we thank you for the record that gives us Jesus' parable of the faithful servants. And Lord, we would ask for your grace that we would, in fact, protect the things that we are to protect that we would understand that the protecting of those things that we are to protect is absolutely necessary. That we would remember that any Christian can be faithful and that every Christian is expected to be faithful. Lord, forgive me the sin when I have not been faithful. Forgive all of our sin, Lord, where we sense that we have not been faithful. Lord, give us Holy Spirit, help to be faithful in the ministries we have of being a husband or a wife, of being a dad or a mom, of being a friend, of being a worker or a boss, of being a student, of being an evangelist, of being a neighbor, of being a church member, faithfulness with respect to attendance and givings. Faithfulness as a church worker and supporter. Lord, we know that a day of evaluation is coming. And each of us will stand before you as your redeemed children. And you will evaluate what parts of our lives were flammable and unrewardable. And what parts of our lives were inflammable and rewardable. And we know that at the very center of that evaluation is faithfulness. Make us faithful. Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit within us and how he produces his fruit in our lives, and that fruit includes faithfulness. And thank you that we know 
that your measure and definition of success is being faithful. So Lord, we would bow before you in reverential fear and commitment to be the faithful bride of Christ at 62 Collins Avenue. Thank you that you'll help us because where your will is stated, there is your way to do it. You'll help us. We pray these things with gratitude always to the most perfectly faithful Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.